Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am coming to you from our nation's capital at the Ministry of SNARK, deep in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, where we have our studios. In the studio with me is Joe Serencioni of the Plowshares Fund. Uh, in uh, another corner of Washington, in her basement, hiding under a table, is Rosa Brooks, who, you know, <laughs> has <laughs> it's just her worldview that keeps her sitting there under her desk. I'm not under my table. I'm sitting on top of my table. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's... She is levitating over her table, as she is wont to do. Well, that's, a, you know, Just that's a good thing. effervescent. <laughs> the Daily Beast had a story just yesterday about how Jared and Ivanka are into transcendental meditation. Um, which, beautiful. Which, beautiful. which allows people sometimes to levitate. Uh, I, I'm told, or light bounce off. Light as a feather. Ba- light as a feather. <laughs> go on, go on. We'll just imagine, and <laughs> off in Wilton Park, you know, with the entire rest of the cast of Downton Abbey, is all levitating all the time. <laughs> is 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 Corey Shockey? So, in the interim between our last episode and this episode. Uh, which, by the way, folks, was really just a minute and a half. Um, but, you know, you you know, who would know that with all the magic of modern technology? Um, the Saudi government came out and they said, you know, that murder that we said we had nothing to do with. Well, actually, we were trying to interrogate him or kidnap him or something. And it accidentally went wrong. And we accidentally cut him into small pieces and put him into a box. Uh uh, which I guess is the you know royal family putting the blame on the kidnappers or the interrogators uh, rather than themselves uh, and admitting this under pressure because uh, my guess, Cor- you know, and Corey, we were talking about this in the break, is that there's a lot of intelligence out there that confirms this, right? I mean, Corey, that would be your guess, right? Absolutely. My guess is that... Um, so the Turks were bugging the embassy. So so they have the Saudis over a barrel. American intelligence, uh, it sounds like, had lots of different uh, fingerprints of precursor conversations. And after the fact, anyway, lots. My guess is that the president's telephone call with the with. Uh, King Salman was was the president saying, we can't, there's no way you are going to be able to not answer the question of what happened. And way too many people know uh, there's way too much information already out there. It's going to it's going to go 
public. My guess is that the president was putting Pompeo on an airplane to Saudi Arabia to reinforce that message and to say, unless you guys own up to this, there is nothing we can do to help you. Even with the admission, I have a very hard time seeing uh, how we are going to to be able to um, to do anything but treat the Saudis as a government that intends to kidnap, interrogate, and and uh, what's the what's the term for rendition? Rendite? Rosa, please correct me on this. Uh, <laughs> Rendered? Not just somebody who was a citizen of their country, but a permanent resident of the United States of America writing for a major Western newspaper. Uh, this is a really big problem. And the Saudis now, you know, it it's... Um, Aristotle has this lovely phrase for the moment of recognition uh, when, when in a play a character's character is revealed and everything else looks different after that. That's where we are, I think, right now for the Saudi government. I don't see how, how the rule of law that everyone is going to expect for the kind of investment they're trying to draw, where the treatment that the crown prince hopes to receive from Western countries for their ability to uh, take the moral high ground against the Iranian government uh, or the Qatari government for that matter. I think things are going to look a lot different after this. Joe, Joe is chomping at the bit. He, yes. he actually has a bit. Spit out the bit. <laughs> okay, so, so there's, there's so much to unpack here, and, we can, and we, Corey's absolutely right to talk about the, 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 the sort of mega importance of, of all this and how it could fundamentally change the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, somebody, we, a country we repeatedly call one of our, our key ally in the Middle East. So this, But let's just st- start with this incredible reversal. You have to remember, the Saudis repeatedly, categorically denied any knowledge of this whatsoever. I hate to interrupt you, but... The president of the United States also went along with their exactly. denials. Exactly. <laughs> on 60 Minutes on national TV, he says, he, after his, he was reporting to Leslie Stahl about his, his, his discussion with, with the King Salman, says it wasn't like there was a question in his mind. The denial was very strong. That's what Trump says. Therefore, he firmly denied any knowledge. And so based on this, Trump then starts to divert. He starts to raise the possibility that it could have been a set of, of rogue killers, these imaginary people that had no connection with, 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 with the, the king. So now the Saudis admit, apparently, or are admitting that they did have some involvement with this, that Khashoggi did enter their embassy, and there was an interrogation that went south, that went bad, and they, I guess, accidentally killed him. But they're going to have to have a step further. There's going to have to be some fall guy. There's going to have to be a break that gives them some distance from uh, Mohammed bin Salman from MBS. So there's got to be some rogue element in in here, and maybe that's what Trump was hinting at, that this was an element that went too far. You know, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? Precisely. Right? So go, take it. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that, and I think that that's exactly what's likely to happen, that the Saudis will say, MBS will say, 
oh my goodness, I never, ever, ever, ever wanted that to happen. I never would have given any such instructions, but some overzealous rogue people, security people in the, in the consulate in Turkey, um, acting on their own and against policy and against my express instructions, uh, obviously got out of control during an interrogation. They They killed him by accident, then they panicked and you know, accidentally dismembered him and so on and so forth. That's, that's the part that gets a little right. harder to explain. Right. Using the um, bone saw that was smuggled right. into yeah. the country with the Accident. autopsy expert yeah, who was part of the team. Right, right. It's essentially the message is, you know, how could they have made a mistake like that? I wanted them to kidnap them like, they did the president. I don't president, think they even acknowledged the prime minister of Yemen. Like they did of the prime. Excuse me. They wanted to kidnap them like they did the prime minister of Lebanon. Uh, I didn't want them to kill them like we were doing with all the children in Yemen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It was going to be a simple shakedown. <laughs> right. There's so many choices. There's a menu. There's the kidnapping of foreign leaders. There's putting our own people up at the Ritz Carlton in prison. There's beheading people. Right. There's bombing for writing tweets. From afar. And, right. right, and you know it's it's confusing. It's hard, and and, and we're going to let him get away with it. We're going to let him get it. it. It will be it will be an, a, a completely disingenuous and implausible explanation that will rest entirely on the hypothesis that there are these sort of out of control Saudis in the consulate who don't pay any attention to actual law or instructions. But we're going to let him get away with it because it's convenient for us. Uh, so Trump is going to say, "Well, see." You know, it wasn't his fault. You know, there are rogue elements. That's what happens. Well, tr Trump's going to want that. I agree yeah, with absolutely. you. But yeah, absolutely. Will, will he get away with this? Yes. You know, I think he will. Yes, he will I'm get away with it. I'm yes. um, My money I'm isn't. I'm betting on no. I'm with you, uh, okay, Corey. Okay, okay let's wait take a second. Sides. Let's, 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 yeah, let's take sides. Draw the square in the playground. <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. We have to define our terms. Okay. What do you mean by getting away with it or not getting away with it? Go on, go, go on, Corey. When you say no, how do they not yeah. get away with it? So uh, it is certainly true that the president of the United States was looking to give them an exit ramp on this. And that that I certainly believe all parties concerned are, are hypocritical enough to say uh, – Everything we've said across the last 13 days is completely true. We have only just now figured out what these terrible rogue elements of our intelligence service did with no instructions, and, and they'll hang them. And President Trump will try and go on as though nothing has happened. But here's the great thing about free societies. The president's not the only one who gets to vote. I mean, every member of Congress is going to have to decide on any future arms sales to the Saudis. And despite what the president has said, there have been zero deals concluded in the Trump administration. So, so um, Congress is going to have a say on this. American civil society is going to have a say on this. My mom is going to have a say on this. I, I who think actually little, little, most people don't know, but Corey's mom <laughs> controls arms sales to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yes. My mom is proof of of that moment, the anagnorisis that Aristotle tells us about. This is what people are going to associate the government of Saudi Arabia with, and it is going to make extraordinarily difficult any 
ability of the United States to publicly align policies with the Saudis, everything the Trump administration might want to do gets a lot more costly, a lot more difficult to defend politically, because when it was just um, deep state radio nerds like us <laughs> who were complaining about the Saudis, you know, it's easy to to put the foreign policy nerds in a corner. But now, as Olivia Knox pointed out to me earlier today, uh, now it's mainstream political reporters who are going to be watching all of this. So all of a sudden, the notion that Jared Kushner might have provided uh, the Saudi crown prince with with our intelligence community assessment of what the internal sources of opposition to the government are, as was reported a couple of days ago, that gets, you know, that kind of stuff gets mainstream political and the administration has going to have a lot of explaining to you. This feels a lot to me like the moment when the Klieg lights turned on uh, on, you know, Mike Flynn wanting to have a private channel that the intelligence community didn't know about to the Russians. Well, it, U.S. Saudi relations are going to get that level of scrutiny going forward. Well, let's pick up on that. Um, I do want to say, by the way, translating for nerd audience out there, that when Corey says anagnoriasis, um, meaning recognition in Greek, um, and, and another analogous um, uh, uh, thinker has addressed that moment. That you know, Homer Simpson with <laughs> with the. With with the do moment, right? And one, one and the same. It's exactly the same. It's exact. It's exactly the same thing. Uh, now, speaking of home, where's my Duff beer? At? Exactly. Speaking of, uh, you like beer? I like beer. I, I like still a, like, I beer. like beer. I shouldn't be um, drinking too much beer. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Rosa, w- yeah. one of one David, of the things that I recall I like from too. a recent, I know. Um, I, one of the things I recall from, in fact, she's sitting in her rec room at home. The floor is wet bar. littered with beer cans. Um, <laughs> Um, crushed beer cans cans that she's crushed against her forehead that um, in an earlier podcast in other words the last one we did you kept wanting to talk about the upcoming midterms and the implications for foreign policy and I think this is exactly the right time to pick up on what Corey's talking about and, and do that because while the Trump team may change in a variety of ways that may make it actually more Trumpian um, if the Democrats win the House, you're going to see some radical hard turns. You're going to see all these investigations. We've talked about that. But on Russia policy, you're going to see much greater skepticism. But I think there's, you know, a bunch of Republicans that have been going along with that um, also. But I think we're one of the places you're going to see the biggest change has to do with policies towards countries like Saudi Arabia and what's going on in the Middle East, where I think these Democrats are going to come hard and they're going to say, what are the financial ties of Donald Trump in Saudi Arabia? What are his financial ties across the Middle East? What are his financial ties um, uh, in places like Turkey and in other kinds of countries? What are we, you know, where 
um, where did those things compromise him? And what did he know? I mean, you know, still one of the most fascinating aspects of this whole Khashoggi horror show is when did our intelligence community actually find out about this? Did they find out in advance that this was going to happen? Did they have an obligation to warn Khashoggi, who's a permanent resident of the United States? Did they have an obligation to try to intervene to stop it from happening? For how long after they learned about it, did they cover it up? And why did they cover it up? And how high did that go? And I think if those investigations go on, it can only have an extremely chilling effect on those um, relationships. So I this don't is- know, David. Um, I'm sort of moving to the nothing matters stage of uh, political depression. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, wow. Sure, sure. Corey, talk her off the ledge. Come on, Rosa. But, well, but I think, I think so far nothing has mattered, right? Um, which is to say that, you know, odds are the Democrats control the House, at least after the midterms. Um, yes, indeed. Odds are they start doing exactly what you've just suggested they're going to do, um, as, as indeed they should. Um, which is holding hearings and so on to try to look into some of those issues. Um, Odds are that will result in further revelations that relate to the uh, blatant corruption um, of Trump, his his family members, and his inner circle. And odds are it won't make a single shred of difference to anything, right? And I say that because... How many moments have we had already in the short, uh, Trump, short-lived Trump administration, um, only, only a little over a year and a half, in which we have all said, for instance, when he had his summit with Putin, we've said, this is, this is it. You know, he can't survive this politically. Surely this will turn people against him, all the people who mysteriously have still been with him. You know, surely, surely this little revelation is the one that is going to be, you know, tip the balance for his remaining supporters. And yet it doesn't make any difference um, because A, people pay no attention to the news and B, uh, if they do pay attention, it turns out that they don't care. Um, So I don't, I, I, I don't see this making any particular difference. I think, you know, as Corey said, um, we have during the Trump administration, the United States has not, uh, uh, created any new armed sales deals with the Saudis. Um, we probably still won't. You know, this will this will make it even less likely that we will. But does, will we actually have you know sanctions or anything? No. Will we actually stop doing joint military exercises? Stop sharing intelligence? Stop doing all the other things that we currently do? No, I doubt it. You know, so I, I don't I don't see this making any particular difference one way or the other. I think the the disgusting trends we've seen will continue to be disgusting and nothing is going to change it. So, you know, Joe, Rosa is known here as the lifetime (laughs) holder of the thorny crown of entropy presents us with the bleak view. I'm going to push back on a little bit. Um, Later on, we'll get to Corey, whose views are always very cheerful sometimes. Um, uh, uh, on, on these kind of things. But, but let me just take it a step further. Not only, I mean, the, a Democratic House may pursue policies like this but not be able to implement them because mm-hmm. the White House and the Senate is against them. But I actually think that one thing that countries like the Saudis have not weighed properly is that 
it's quite possible Donald Trump does not last forever. Mm-hmm. It's quite possible this period does not last forever. And one of the things that's going to happen post this election is we're going to get into the next election cycle yes. pretty darn quick. And you could have a Democratic Party that runs as a, you know, with a key part of its foreign policy platform being much tougher on human rights, much tougher on administrations like this, much tougher on a whole host of issues, yes. particularly if it takes a more progressive turn in its choice of a candidate. And all of a sudden, these countries that have been trying to take advantage of Trump's laxness are going to find themselves facing a backlash. Yes. So it, it it's hard to make any kind of predictions, right? But let's look at the correlation of forces here. And I think there's some big forces on the anti-Saudi side here. And one of them is the Washington Post, which has taken this on. This is personal for them. And there have been some of the strongest editorials I've seen in the Trump era written about this. Just a couple of days ago, Fred Hyatt, the the head, the editor in charge of the opinion page of the Washington Post, his op-ed is, Will You Work for a Murderer? And he makes this very personal about this. And and what you realize this happens, you're, you're forced to confront the morality of taking Saudi money. And this has been a big source of their power in this town. The billions of dollars that is pulsed through the blob that goes to, to, to think tanks like the ones I used to work at, that goes to universities, that pays for lobbyists, that pays for contractors. And you could take it because it was okay. They were our ally. But now, this is somebody who just murdered a, 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 a journalist in cold blood by accident. Right, by rogue and, and there's something, and I know, and you, you, we could say, and it's right. So the, the the lives of the innocent Yemeni children matter less. And the truth is, th- this personifies this evil that is this become the, that is the Saudi government in a way that the bombing of school children just doesn't. And it makes, and particularly because of, you've caught them now in this in this big lie. So. What this does then is it weak potentially weakens the grip that the that the Saudi and the Emiratis have had on the think tank on the elite opinion here in this town. You already seen some people, Brookings Institution, to their credit, uh, uh, turning down a new grant from them. No, none in the think tank world has really stood up to this, but it's possible. You've seen their big Davos in the desert conference now wither with at least half the participants quitting saying they won't come, including all of the media that was supposed to come with the exception of Fox News. I would predict, and by the time this airs, we'll know that they're going to have to cancel that that, that, that conference, that it's going to be a complete bust. So you start to, to crack this image of, of you know, Saudis as, your, as the patron, as a person you'd be hesitant to speak out against. And let me go just one step further. I think this has a real possibility of weakening the hold of MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, on uh, the crown prince who had been the consolidator of all this, who had turned the kingdom towards this much more aggressive foreign policy, who was behind the war in Yemen, the shakedown of his fellow princes, the kidnapping of the Lebanese uh, prime minister, the breaking of relations with Canada because they tweeted a criticism of, of the human rights situation involving Saudi women. He's the one who's doing this. I don't know if there can be a big enough firebreak that protects him. And if he were to fall, well, then that shatters things even further. I want to say something here. Um, It's going to be a brief sort of word from our 
uh, us as the hosts of this whole thing, um, because I think it's important to bring up. And I, I wasn't necessarily going to bring it up, but 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 Joe has 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 raised it. You know, when I uh, worked at foreign policy, we did some work for a variety of governments: mm-hmm. German government, Japanese government, other governments, South African government, and the Emiratis. We did something called Peace Game, which was looking at how you achieve peace. And there was always a very strict wall between what we did on the business side and what we did on the editorial side to guarantee editorial freedom. And and having that clear line, I think, enabled that. When I started this company, we did something with the Emiratis called Culture Summit, which was an event that brought together artists to talk about the future of culture tied into the opening of the Louvre there and so forth. And, you know, I'm aware of the various kinds of ongoing issues with regard to the country. And I thought, well, this is for the public good. And again, there's a line between our editorial content and that. We have now signed on and we've signed up under Farah and we've reported it quite clearly to do other things on culture, tolerance, women's empowerment, green energy, things that I think are positive things here in the United States. Each and every one of those dollars that we have taken has has led to a, a lot of sort of soul searching on our part. Mm-hmm. Are we enabling something or forgiving something where – uh, you know, a government that we might work with does something that we think is inappropriate, or is there a sufficient benefit of emphasizing what is positive and moving forward the positive discussion um, that it's worth doing? And are we protected if we keep a Chinese wall right. that allows us to speak as we are speaking right now? I hope that the very nature of the conversation that we're having here says Deep State Radio is completely independent of all of that. And I think if you listen to some of the other people who have been on Deep State Radio or come to mm-hmm. Deep State Radio, you know, we see our obligation as reporting without any kind of a bias in any direction different views on these issues. But the th- the thing that makes the way we're doing it a little different from some of these think tanks that you're talking about is it's completely transparent. We have yes. mentioned it. We have uh, you know, filed, you know, uh, disclosure documents about it. Everything has been out in the open. Uh, and anybody who asks a question about it, we answer the question, which is we're trying to do good. Yes. And we see some merit to that. And 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 we're not going to let it stop us from speaking our conscience. Well, I wish more people would do that. I mean, that's the first step. Let's be transparent about this. Let the institutes in this town say what who they're taking money from and make it clear and so that we can distinguish this. So, for example, Brookings Institution, Takes has taken a lot of money from from the Saudis and the Emiratis, but you have some of their their chief experts there, Aaron David Miller, uh, Stephen Cook, speaking out quite strongly on, on this issue. So clearly, it's possible, but you have to look at it, acknowledge it, examine it, and maybe take a little less of it. Right. Well, yeah, and you ha- you have to be transparent. You have to have clear guidelines. You have to think mm-hmm. it through, and you have to ensure that it doesn't affect your work yeah. product. Anyway, Corey, I didn't want to get off track there uh, from our broader discussion of where things are going, but I no, think David, I think full disclosure I, is important. I I think that's right. I think there are um, lots of ways that we can cooperate with people who don't fully share our values and help them see the advantages of our approach to stuff, um, but. You have to be clear about the values of your organization. You have to be transparent about the practice of those values. Um, and and we ought, all of us who are in leadership positions and in institutions, always to agonize about the preservation of our intellectual independence. 
Yeah, no, also our values. I mean, to the extent, you know, for me, the guiding principle is, is what we are doing well, something that advances mm -hmm. a good or is it something that excuses something that's bad? And 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 we don't want to do the latter. And I think the way that we offset it is by is through our candor. Yeah. And, and you know, we sh I think all of us have seen what's happened in this town and in Washington in the, over the last 30 years. Well, maybe not all of us. I'm a little older than the rest of you. But I remember a time when there wasn't a lot of Saudi money in this town. I remember watching it come in and where suddenly everybody was taking it. And this stream has just enveloped the town. Now it's time to reevaluate that and take a real good look at what we're taking and why we're taking it. And do we really need it? Yeah, I, th I, th I, th I, th I think that that's right. Um, I'm By the way, to feel left out. The Saudis have never offered me any money. Well, you've never been in an institute that's taken Saudi money at uh, Carnegie Endowment, CSIS, yeah. Department of Defense, the oh, Department yeah. of Defense. There's a good one. Well, no, no, we we, we used to have to right. go. I, I, I must say, when we when I was at other places, we would go through this discussion, and sometimes they would, people would bring up. You know, governments like yes. that was a particularly nefarious kind of money. And then Boeing would come in and say, hey, we're going to sponsor this whole thing right. because we want to sell a lot of bombs or yes. fighters. Yeah. And, you know, defense contractors, cigarette companies, alcohol, you know, a lot of these companies do right. bad stuff. Right. You know, Monsanto, you know, there, right. there are a variety of companies that do kind of bad stuff. You have to have values. You have to have transparency. You have to have clear rules. And you have to have these kind of Chinese walls that protect the editorial and intellectual well, independence of these places. If, if I could, let's bring us back to the, the, the Khashoggi murder and, uh, and what its implications might be. Because one of the other implications here is what it means for U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. And there were already, uh, before this even happened, a, a, a chorus, a bipartisan chorus of senators who wanted to stop the Saudi war on Yemen. Chris Murphy uh, brought forward a, a resolution disapproving of the arms sale, the sale of a, a precision guided munitions to the Saudis. It failed, didn't quite get it, but he got 44 votes. I would say that that he now has a majority of, of the Senate who will vote with him to block that particular arms sales. I think you're going to see resolutions, you know, uh, uh, de demanding that there be uh, explicit authorization for the use of military force in any new military action undertaken by the United States because people are afraid that the Saudis want to drag us into their fight with Iran and want us to take the military action. There'll be tremendous resistance to, to that uh, in the Senate now, greater suspicion of the Saudi role, a greater spotlight on Saudi motivations here. Yeah, I think that's true. Rosa, where, what other changes do you think might be in store if the Democrats take the House? Oh, well, you know, my fear, and I mentioned this briefly in our in our previous episode, um, you know, my, my, my fear is that uh, the Democratic, uh, you know, upping the tempo of oversight hearings and investigations um, into Trump and his circles, ties with Russia, ties with the Saudis, et cetera, uh, will get spun in the right wing media as, uh, you know, witch hunts, vindictive, et cetera, and could actually end up uh, hurting Democratic chances in the 2020 elections. Is that, I mean, that, that's my fear. My, my fear is that we have sort of 
we have we have reached you know peak fake news uh, in which it's harder and harder for facts to penetrate the political discourse. I, I think our the American political discourse and most political discourses have always been at least somewhat fact resistant, but that we've kind of crossed over to the point where it everything is viewed through such a partisan lens that uh, anything the Democrats do, you know, they're sort of damned if they do, damned if they don't. And I, I worry about that quite a lot. Uh, I, I worry, I worry that a lot of energy will go into uh, oversight hearings that won't, in fact, make any particular difference, and will just be be perceived as, uh, you know, something that the Republican and independent voters have to sort of protect Trump against uh, the the so-called witch hunt. Um, Corey, one other consequence of the Democrats taking over the House, uh, particularly if the Trump administration sort of takes a turn towards more hawkish or Trump-like, more erratic, more Bolton-dominated views, um, is paralysis, where the House wouldn't fund anything, where the House would have investigations, where the House would be promulgating a bunch of policies or policy ideas that were rejected by the Senate and the White House. And an effect of that could be essentially further negating American leadership on the world stage. And I'm, 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 I'm interested, does that, does that worry you? Does that scenario worry you? Uh, well, it worries me. Yes, it worries me. Uh, not as much as the alternatives worry me. So the, the situation you described, which is a vociferous Trump administration where the president uh, feels emboldened against any potential restraint and uh, increasingly insulates himself with people who egg on his worst instincts. Um, I'm perfectly happy for the wheels of American government to grind to a halt because the founding fathers designed it that way. That's what's supposed to happen. Um, if, if, you know, the president's main power is the power of persuasion, um, convincing people he's on the right track, helping allies get elected, persuading those who are of other parties that he's got policies that merit supporting. And President Trump is the first president in, in my political lifetime who actually didn't even try to tack to the center who actually didn't even believe it was his job to reach across the aisle and try and find, you know, try and shuffle the deck and find people you could build support with. And his reprehensible rhetoric and behavior, I think, has earned him Democrats grinding everything to a halt, which parenthetically Republicans did for a lot of the Obama administration. Uh, there's simply no substitute for winning the political argument. And so if the president can't win the political argument, the founders would be standing and politely clapping to see that the Congress grinds it to a halt. Um, it's a nice image, the founders politely clapping. Um, and Joe, it sort of suggests to me that there is a built-in first do-no-harm uh -huh. mechanism in the in the U.S. Uh, government, which is to say, um, if there's big division, yes. then you get to a kind of paralysis. Having said that, 
the president has a lot of leeway in the conduct of foreign policy. And traditionally, presidents who get a little further in their term and who find themselves paralyzed start doing stuff by executive order and start doing stuff independently. And so you could get this situation getting having Trump do more on his own and just bypassing the Congress, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I run a small foundation and our guiding philosophy right now is to, one, prevent the worst from happening. And do that. And second, prepare. literally, his foundation is actually to present to prevent the worst from happening. <laughs> the very worst. Total global destruction. <laughs> yes, right. That's right, what right. we do. That's our job. And the second is to prepare the policy. We'd so like far, to by say. the way, we're doing great. Thank <laughs> you. But tomorrow's another yeah, day. Right. So, and so, and so, I think that's what you what you're picking up on what Corey said. I mean, in large part. In some ways, it's it's your constitutional responsibility to stop the government if you think that what's what the government is about to do is 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 harmful to the national interest. So you, I think you will see that, and you will see in the Congress more attention to the foreign adventures or misadventures of this administration, and just on the Saudi, you know, more looking at how fo- following the Saudi lead, which is basically what the administration policy has been in the Middle East since Trump was inaugurated. Let's do what the Saudis want us to do. Has been bad for U.S. national interests, and we shouldn't follow them over the cliff and into this latest continuation of this two millennia long religious war that the Sunnis have been having with the with the Shia. So, so that's one part I think that that you'll like that you'll likely see. the 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 second part is 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 to try to stop stop Trump himself from lashing out, and this is much more difficult to do because he could. Um, engage in practices that could provoke, for example, an Iranian response. You could, you could see, you saw what John Bolton did, just to, and and Mike, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, just a couple of weeks ago, declared that the U.S. forces in Syria were going to stay there until Iran left, dramatically changing the mission of U.S. forces in Syria. You were, you could see much more aggressive action with with U.S. forces to try to push the Iranians out, and that's a flashpoint. And, and if there's a, a triggering mechanism like that, and remember, the Revolutionary Guard in some ways want to want a fight with the United States. So you could see the, the actors on both sides triggering a conflict that the president could then use to escalate to a larger war that he believes will help him win re-election in 2020. Rosie, you got the last word here. You wanted to Yeah, I, I, I think Corey and I have, have sort of taken the view that uh, the president doesn't actually want anything to escalate into a larger war. Uh, he recognizes it's too dangerous despite his uh, bellicose rhetoric. Um, but but, but I, I also think, I, I'm, I'm actually less worried about I, for all that I, I am terrified of, of Trump, I'm less worried about Trump uh, making a conscious decision to escalate something into a larger war than I am about the people in his inner circle doing that despite Trump's desire to stay out of a larger war. Um, I, I do think that the possibilities, but not you know both in Syria and the South China Sea, uh, uh, in particular, the, the possibilities of, of the sort of inadvertent escalation, whether it's with Iran or with the Russians or with the Chinese, remain significant. But I, I'm, I'm less worried about I, I, I think Trump is, uh, you know, he's the proverbial chicken hawk. Um, uh, I think that every single time when his bellicose rhetoric appears to be leading dangerously close to an actual conflict, 
he backs down, he simply declares victory and he moves on to the next thing. Um, I think, unfortunately, uh, I'm less persuaded that the John Boltons of the world wouldn't try to uh, create a situation where he's unable to do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm less worried about him than I am about the rest of them. Right. I, I agree with you. The, the, the greatest danger is that we stumble into a bigger conflict. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, that's very nearly optimistic. Um, <laughs> and that, I think, is going to be as good as we get here. <laughs> um, I want to thank Corey. I want to thank Joe. I want to thank Rosa. I want to thank all of you for joining us. Uh, I'd like to encourage you to listen in to our one-on-ones, which we do throughout the week now that add to our uh, roster of, of uh, discussions and uh, to uh, uh, subscribe by uh, registering or becoming a member to our, our Deep State Daily, which provides you with sort of a rundown of what's going on in the world and some blogs to go look at the new voices. We're starting to have some new voices uh, actually living up to our goal of getting people up and out and into the influential world in which you live um, who wouldn't normally be able to do that. Uh, particularly um, uh, women and younger people and people of color, people from around the world, uh, so that we are not your father's um, foreign policy publication, but in fact are a place where you can start hearing some new ideas, some different ideas, some independent ideas, uh, and ideally some ideas that lead to solutions. So deepstateradionetwork.com, join up, join us, come back soon, uh, and we'll welcome you here into the third sub-basement. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.